Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yevamot, daf Yud Zion, page 17. I'm actually going to start at the bottom of the previous daf, where the Gemara was having discussions about um, sort of different categories of uh, towns or places where we could not necessarily trust the Jewish lineage of the people um, who lived in those uh, who lived in those places, and so the Gemara wants to give us sort of another halacha that deals with uh, this type of concern we have that a community of people who were Ovde avodazara who committed idolatry uh, are actually you know considered to be full of Jewish mamzerim. I'm a Rav Yehuda. I'm a Rav Asi. So Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav Asi, Ove kochabim shekidesh bazman hazat. If a uh, idolater, uh, you know, marries a Jewish woman in today's day and age. We suspect that it actually could be a valid Kedushin. Because maybe he actually could be a Jew um, from the 10 tribes. Now, this is a very, very interesting concept, right? That we know that the 10 tribes uh, were basically put into exile during, uh, uh, even before the destruction of the first page just by Sancheriv, right by the Assyrian uh, Empire. Um, and, you know, that essentially part of what Sancheriv did was he scattered the 10 tribes all over. And presumably the idea is they became assimilated and intermarried. And so the question is, is, you know, what is the status when a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman had a child together under Jewish law? Uh, Ravasi at least would hold that that child would be considered to be a mamzer. So what Ravasi is essentially saying here is that any non-Jew basically could be suspected of being a potential Jewish mamzer, meaning there's somebody who actually descended from the 10 tribes. And what that would mean is, is that if that, you know, potential mamzer married a Jewish woman, that condition actually would be would be valid because it was two Jews, but it would be a problem, uh, you know, for uh, but the woman basically it's a problem because she would be marrying, marrying a mamzer. Uh, uh, that's basically what it would be saying here. So I, I found, first of all, this to be just totally uh, mind blowing because I don't know. I just would have assumed after so much time had passed and so much assimilation, why would this be sort of a particular? Uh, why would this actually be a worry? Um, and, you know, if you think about it, it's hundreds of years, if not maybe even a thousand, I would have to do the calculation, but it's a very long time from the exile and the assimilation of the 10 tribes. And what Ravasi is basically saying is, is that because Jews were sort of scattered everywhere, we just don't know. It's possible somebody has a little Jewish blood in them. So the Gemara challenges this and says, right. And so they're basically saying, shouldn't we basically apply the rule? that whatever separates is assumed to have separated from the majority. So it's exactly this question, right? The majority of people who do Avodazara are not really descendants of the 10 tribes. So why are we actually concerned about this? So the Gemara says, So Rav Asi was basically referring to in a place where we know the 10 tribes actually settled. So in other words, it's a place where we know that the Jews went and therefore it's more of a possibility. We're not talking about a non-Jew or a Ovdeh Avodah from just any, you know, place. And then the Gemara goes on to say, where are the areas where the 10 tribes went? To Amar Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana, so Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana said, 
Benachim bechalach bechabor nahar gazan baremadai. So here they quote a pasuk from Mulachim uh, Bet from Second Kings chapter eighteen verse eleven, where it says the king of Assyria settled them, meaning the ten tribes in Chalan Chabor on the river Gozan and in the cities uh, of Madai uh, uh, of Madai. So now uh, Rabbi Abba comes and says what each of these places are. Chala ze Chalazon. So Chala is Chalazon. That's the name of a river. That's what Rashi says. The Chavor ze Chadyav. So Chavor is Chadyav, which maybe is some type of uh, kingdom that might have been, uh, that's in northern Iraq is what some people say. Nahar goes on the river of Giznak. So that's uh, that's Giznak. So maybe that's uh, a place in northeastern uh, Syria. Um, and the cities of Matai, Hamadan, and its uh, and its neighboring towns, and this may be like in some area in Iran, like western Iran. and some say This is actually uh, Nihar. Um, maybe that's that's where that is. It's its neighboring towns. Amar Shmuel. So th- these are the names of the uh, of the four towns. said, All of these places are basically unfit. In other words, we worry that the residents in all these places may have actually descended from the ten tribes uh, or from women from the ten tribes who married non-Jews. And in this case, uh, you know, maybe they're actually uh, Jews. That's what he's saying. So this is a little bit different. What Rav Asi was talking about was the issue of Jewish men who married non-Jewish women, and those were mamzerim. Rabbi Yochanan, by using this language of psul, right, um, he's saying that, uh, you know, that uh, that it's it's different. What he's talking about is more an issue of women, Jewish women marrying uh, marrying non-Jews. So it, it's it just just to know that that's what some of the Mepharshim explain here. There's a little bit of a difference between what Rabbi Yochan and Rabbi Asi are saying. So um, I, 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 this whole thing is just, it, it's interesting also that, you know, we always talk about like sort of where are the 10 tribes, where are the 10 tribes? And, uh, you know, the Gemara here talks about it and says, oh, this is actually where they went. I've never seen anybody actually refer to this Gemara in a discussion about the 10 tribes. And I don't know if you have actually. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of these discussions and, and citations of this Gemara and other Gemaras, right? When, you know, now decades ago, when the Ethiopians were first, I don't want to say discovered, but right when there was a question about bringing, airlifting them to Israel, uh, this was the 80s, I guess, right? Something like that. And um, and the B'nai Menashe, right? In uh, Where are they from? A certain area of India, right? They're, they're, these are the the where the people themselves identify as Jews, but they don't necessarily have, the, the Ethiopians for sure don't have any rabbinic anything, right? They don't have any Gemara, meaning going back, they have their own oral traditions that that are built on the biblical stuff, right? So the question of, are they an exiled, you know, a, an offshoot or whatever of the exiled 10 tribes, I feel like these are those questions. Right. And, and part of what was a Gior L'Chumra. Right. So there's real specific places here. Now, I'm just going to read a little bit more here. So Ravasi, remember, says that basically if an Obde Zara, an idolater, marries a Jewish woman, right, um, in an area that was maybe where the 10 tribes went, 
then that Kedushin has to be treated as a valid Kedushin. And this was reported, you know, in Ravasi's name by Rabbi Yehuda. So now the Gemara goes on to continue quoting Rabbi Yehuda. Ki amritza kame right? When I, Rabbi Yehuda, said this before Shmuel, Amar Li, Shmuel said to Rabbi Yehuda, your son who comes from a Jewish woman is called your son. But your son who comes from an idolatrous woman is not called your son. Rather, he is considered her son. And so this is also very interesting because this is really talking about basically matrilineal descent, right? Which we know is you know, sort of what is the majority of Jews accept is really what creates sort of your Jewish lineage, right? And so what basically, so, you know, I think it's just interesting to see here in the Gemara that there really is a discussion of, you know, sort of matrilineal descent. And that essentially what Shmuel is saying is, is, yeah, if you're married to a Jewish woman, it's going to be called your son. But if you were to have relations with a, with a, a idolatrous woman, right? It's not going to be called your son. It's basically her son. In other words, it's born into that idolatrous faith, but not into this Jewish faith. And therefore, what this would mean is, is that if a man, uh, you know, from the 10 tribes basically married a non-Jewish woman, their children would basically be considered not to be Jewish. Not that they're considered Jewish mamzerin, but they're just actually not Jewish. And therefore, we really don't need to be worried about if an, you know, if an idolater marries a Jewish woman, that he could be marrying a Jewish mamzer, um, and, uh, you know, and that, that, you know, that, you know, uh, Kedushin is actually binding, because actually, if you go back a, a generation before, in other words, if you have a man who maybe there's a question if they had some sort of 10 tribe lineage, but if the mother, that man's mother was an idolater, he's just considered an idolater. It's, it's not, he's not considered we don't worry about him being Jewish at all, or even the issue about Mamzeres. So then the Gemara says, okay, but surely there were daughters of these 10 tribes, right? So now you, you solve the problem of the sons, but what about the daughters? And Ravina said, learn from Shmuel's teaching. Your daughter's son, who comes from an idolatrous man, is, is called your son. He is, he is, uh, he's Jewish like his mother and not an idolater like his father. Again, emphasizing the point of matrilineal descent. So what this would be saying is children of women from the 10 tribes who marry an Oved Abodazara, right, an idolater, they're actually considered Jewish. So then we still do have a, Ravasi's concern still holds because an idolater who marries a Jewish woman, that Jew, you know, that might actually be a Jew, and then the condition would actually be binding. In other words, uh, an idolater who possibly, uh, you know, his mother was actually really Jewish, uh, th- and it's really his father was the idolater, that's really what the case is. And then the Gemara says, Gimri Tavanata Talhu Dara Itzduri Itzdari. So then they have this very interesting tradition which says that the daughters of that generation, it literally means they were torn. Now, if that means it was a product of rape or what does that literally mean? But it means that their wombs were t- torn and they basically, they were no longer able to have children. So in the end, we say we're not even concerned that any of the idolaters descended from women uh, of the 10 tribes because that sort of line uh, it didn't continue in any way. It's really a question of whether 
if there's any lineage there at all, it really came uh, from the men. And then they have a different version of this, Ika de Amri, Ki Amritza Kame de Shmuel, when Rabbi Huda said this before Shmuel, Amar Li Shmuel said to him, Lo Zazumisham Achasuam Ovde Kachavim Gumarim. They did not budge from there until they rendered them or made them complete idolaters. That means, uh, M- M- explained, like the Nevi'im or somebody basically at some point said that all members of the 10 tribes, right, who marry, uh, who marry a, a non-Jew, they basically lose their status um, as Jews. And so they quote here a pasuk from Hosea chapter 5, verse 7, that says they betrayed Hashem for they begot alien children. So really interesting, Gamar. First of all, it identifies, you know, the places where the 10 tribes went. Second of all, to me, this is a passage that really talks about the concept of matrilineal descent. And third, the Gemara is really dealing with a bigger issue, which is what do we do about the possibility that there's still some of that Jewish, you know, Jewish lineage out there um, from the 10 tribes? And ultimately, based on this sort of Eka de Amri, the, the alternate uh, conversation between Rabbi Yehuda and Shmuel, the argument is basically made by Shmuel. The Nevi'im just said at some point there was so much assimilation. We just don't sort of worry about that any, that about that anymore at all. Um, you know, very interesting Gemara that I think really, uh, you know, in today's world actually could be sort of, I don't want to say applied practically, but exactly like you said, Anne, that now that we have had sort of these pockets of people in very far flung places who claim to have some, you know, who claim that they actually are Jewish and maybe are the 10 tribes. And then you look at this Gemara, you know, I would just love to see, like, what would Chazal say about that today? I feel like I wouldn't mind pitting, pitting Chazal against the current Rabbanut. Forgive me for the, you know, snide comment here, but I feel like there's a good amount of, you know, uh, when you, let's put it this way. There are many times when the current cases that face you know, the Jewish people today to determine who is a Jew, who's got what kind of status in terms of, like we said, Mamzeru, whatever, lineage, etc. I feel like there are any number of open question marks. And I think that very often the default way of handling those question marks these days is to say, let's be stringent here. But what let's be stringent here is nearly always the res- it's not just stringent, right? Because you could be always stringent. Being stringent in halacha means that if you're being machmir in one way, you're being makil, you're being lenient in another way, right? So I feel like these kinds of res- stringencies are always to the side of restriction, right? We're going to say that that person is not Jewish, or we're going to say that person needs a conversion just to be on the safe side, or we're going to say that that person is a mamzer. Now, to say that somebody is a mamzer carries with it so many you know, like follow-up details. It's not incidental. And sometimes nowadays they do it after the fact, years, generations after the fact, oh, your grandmother turns out to have been a mother. That's not the way, it's pretty clear from these kinds of commands that that's not the way the halacha is supposed to work. So I will get off my soapbox, but my point is just that I wouldn't mind hearing the sages who determine these halachas and had clearly had great sensitivity to the fact that there's a whole slew of issues out there. I wouldn't mind them talking to the, current, you know, whatever, rabbinic leadership, at least in the political sphere within Israel, the state of Israel, I mean, who who then end up, as I say, like end up restricting things in ways that end up with so many ramifications that are, you know, 
not so clear to me that it's the right course. Um, although, again, they're difficult cases, and I, I'm glad there are Gemaras that handle, that address these, the many complexities. Speaking of which, we have a new Perak and we have a new Mishnah, um, which, you know, kind of Can elaborates. Can I just point out, we only have yeah. two Mishnahs in the first Perak of Yavamos. Yes, that is true, but not for lack of dopim. You know, there was plenty of different cases in this, look, 15 cases in that first Mishnah. There's plenty, and six in the second, there's plenty to talk about. So, in chapter two, right, but I just we open... want to point out if you do, uh, if no, I'm sorry, I think we had three, we had three, three Mishnahs. Um, but if you look at a regular Mishnah, just to point this out, Mish, the third and fourth Mishnah are actually uh, like if you look at a regular Mishnahos, it's the division is different for the first parak, and in the Gemara, it's actually combined the third and fourth into one, just to. Point that out. Okay, that's that's good to know. Okay, so now we're going to go on to the second parak, the second chapter, and the first mission of there, which of course is continuing along some of the cases that we've discussed already in parak Aleph in the first chapter, although not exactly really from the Mishnah. So here we go. The Gemara says, and I think it like it's so interesting to me that it picks up on what is clearly the most fascinating. Uh, presentation of a case, right? The idea that you've got a woman who is who needs Yibum, right? Who somehow requires Yibum because a brother died, right? But on the other hand, the brother that might be the one to do Yibum was not alive at the time that the first brother was alive. Meaning they were not alive, they were not in the sa- in the world, right? They were not alive at the same time. And of course, one might then say that you can make the argument and it's not really whatever we never really go there, but you might say that the one that this, the brother who's born later, the baby is never going to be eligible to be doing Yibum under these circumstances because, you know, so we never paskin halacha based on something that doesn't exist. Right. So if the bro- the baby brother didn't, wasn't alive and the first brother dies, then she die he dies and there's no need for Yibum. Right. You would think because he doesn't have a brother. But now let's say he has a brother who comes along who's born after the first brother dies. That's our case. And the Gemara says, I'm sorry, the Mishnah says, How do you even have that case? So the Mishnah describes, Meaning, so it says, don't think that that case that I've just suggested, meaning one brother dies and the next brother comes along as a baby after he dies, that's not the circumstance. What's the circumstance? You have two brothers one of them dies childless, and then another brother is born, right? Two, so then now there's a minimum of three brothers. So now the second brother, who was indeed alive when the first brother died, had that requirement for Yibum. He does Yibum, and then he dies. So now brother one died, left a widow. The widow has Yibum from the second brother. The second brother dies. But and so, but in the interim, while the, that couple was married, while the yibum was taking place, a new brother has been born, and now does that brother need to do yibum? The the baby, right, one or the little one, right? Does the little brother now need to do yibum for the first brother because there was never children with a second marriage with the, with the yibum marriage, or is he doing yibum for the second brother's death? But that was only yibum. So let's see how this plays out. And he dies. That's the second one. So now, 
So then we're going to say, well, the first one, so what the widow is going to, she can go free. Because why? The brother never lived at the same time that her her husband who left her a widow um, was in the world. So what's the shniya? So what happens? Um, what hap- we, we really have a case here of two women, right? The mission presents it. It's not clear that you've got a second woman there. But the second woman is the second brother's um, wife or co-wife of the of the widow. Let's say this properly. We have brother A dies, leaves a widow. The widow has yibum from the, from the brother, the brother who's alive and well at the time of their marriage and so on. He's an adult. He um, and and so the widow of that first brother will now have Yibum with the second brother, but the second brother had a wife, apparently. And if she dies, so they end up being co-wives, right? The Yibum wife and the his regular wife end up having their their co-wives, but the first wife, yeah, I, I need a picture. I need to be able to, to let's give them names or something, right? We have the widow, we're gonna call widow, and the the wife of the second brother, we're gonna call wife. Now when the second brother dies, the widow goes free because she was only in this relationship because of the evil of the first brother who died. And wife now has a requirement for Yibum. And she can get that Yibum now from the baby brother who was born after the first brother died. It's not that complicated. It's just complicated to say in words. Okay, so now what happens? Asaba ma'amar vamit. So what would happen if the second brother does the, um, establishes that there's going to be yibum by virtue of what they call ma'amar? Ma'amar here is we're gonna we're gonna understand it to be like betrothal, right? And it's a betrothal from the yavam to the widow, right? And the idea is that this ma'amar is going to it, it, it's like intent, right? It's plan that they're actually gonna get married, and it's not quite the same thing as what we usually call kiddushin or whatever. Um, because the the phenomenon of the requirement for yibum is already there, right? It doesn't it doesn't have any. It's not because he says ma'amar because he says he's going to actually marry her. In he's going to do yibum yibum. It's not that he says he's going to do do yibum that makes yibum kick in. The requirement for yibum is there from the moment there's a childless couple and the brother dies the husband dies right but in any case he says he's he says he does his mama they haven't gotten as far as marriage so the marriage has not been consummated so she cannot be pregnant on the name of the dead brother right but he so he says mama or whatever whatever the right verb there would be he does mama vomit and then he dies so now let's say there is that means that she never fully became the Yavama, right? She never fully was married to that second, to the brother, right? So what happens? Now she'll have, there's a third brother. She'll do Chalitza because she's already like, she had Mamar with a second brother, so she can't get out of it all together. The way in the first case that we just saw, um, she could, she if that second brother dies, she's allowed to go free because there's no brother who was alive at the time that her first husband was alive to stay married to, to do Yibum again so she can go free. But in this case, because there was no case of 
There was no case of yibum. It was never a full yibum. So then we say, well, you know what? She should have chalitza, and she can't do yibum anyway. Like it's too. The the gemara here kind of says like this was going to be. I'm not saying these are the words here, right? But like it's too much. Like the betrothal factor didn't. Like it did enough to say that she was supposed to be the Yavama of that man, but then he died. It didn't work. Now we're going to do Chalita and move on with our day, so to speak. Um, okay. I think we can say that's the end of the first Mishnah. Your Dana, do you have anything to say before I just make a brief comment on the Gemara? No, I chart it. That's all I can say. You got to chart it. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that these, it's not even so many people. It's not such a crazy case, except that you end up with three brothers and not and two of them were not necessarily were not alive at the same time, which is why it's an interesting case, which is why it's, I think, how we open our parak. What I wanted to say about the rest of the daf is that the rest of the daf, this particular daf really does get into a great deal of like what is the nature of Yibum and what does it like what what's really happening with Yibum in terms of inheritance and and so on. Um it's a kind of daf that if we if all if the entirety of a bet were the entirety of the daf, we would have spent a lot more time on it. So what I would suggest is, even if you don't necessarily have time to go through all of it with great care, I would recommend reading this on a bet um, that we have not spent time reading, even just to read through it and get acquaint yourself with the topics, because they're going to kick up, they're going to show up through the rest of the chapter. Yeah, I, I think we're just getting started with some new new Yavamos fun. <laughs> so we'll see where this, where this chapter is going to take us. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink of news on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Town with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 